Thank you, Mark, and thank you for all those who have been asking about how we're doing. Uh, as Mark said, my father's wake was last night, and Friday we gathered together as family to clean out the house, which is, many of you have had to go through that process. Uh, it's a very difficult process, and so I, I feel like, uh, and Jonathan Stuckard pointed this out, uh, grief will overtake me in a day or so. Uh, it, it is nigh, and so um, thank you, and if you'd pray for me in that process, that I would grieve well and that I wouldn't try to speed it up and move on from it. And so uh, that would be a good thing. All right, we're continuing our journey uh, through the Gospel of John as we talk about the Holy Spirit as Jesus is revealing him to us in and through various passages from the Gospel of John. This morning we'll be in John chapter 6. Um, any of you who are keeping up with the devotional will notice that uh, I've included some more verses and really feel like I probably should have backed up to the very beginning of the chapter, but you just can't do 70 verses, uh, 71 verses, any justice in the length of time that we have, and so I chose not to. But uh, in the meantime, I do want to ask you a question I think that's very important for this, and you probably have already picked up on it from Psalm 51 and from the songs that we've been singing about hunger and thirst. Uh, I would ask you, what, what do you hunger and thirst for in life? Now, this is a question that from the youngest to the oldest, you should wrestle with a bit. We're, we're all hungering and thirsting for something. And one of the ways you can know how to answer the question is by what you spend the majority of your time, effort, and energy on. Usually what you invest most in is what you want to get the most back out of, right? It's just kind of the, 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 the law of economics in a sense, or the economics of time. Now, for some of us, there is, that's not entirely true. It's the absence of something, right? It's something that we lack, that we hunger and thirst for, whether it's resolution, reconciliation, um, or uh, there's an answer kind of hanging over us like the sword of Damascus that is threatening to fall at some point, right? Um, or there's something still outstanding and we hunger and we thirst for resolution, so there's really two ends of the spectrum, right? There's that which you, you are being satiated by, which answers the question, and there's that which you lack, which also answers the question. And the truth might be for all of us that there's both. There's both that which we are gorging ourselves on and that which we lack. But what we ought hunger and thirst most for is to, to, to be able to walk in the righteousness of Christ. And I get it. That, doesn't, that, that by itself just doesn't sound all that enticing and thrilling. But it really is if we understood what it meant to walk in the righteousness of Christ, the, the fact that it frees us from the tyranny of time. Even though we still experience it, those of us who are, uh, have tasted of the bread of life and, and, and know eternity recognize that the story doesn't end here. And what a joy that is for us, um, especially as we, we lose those we love uh, that, that do know Christ. And what a sorrow it brings when we lose those we love who don't know him. And so um, we, we recognize that there is, there is something amazing about being in Christ. And that it changes how we can live. It changes how we can view any and everything that we experience. The, what it, how, think about how it transforms suffering 
You know, the line in the song, Jesus, lead us with thy power, it says, and I always wonder, who wrote that? Who thought that was a good idea to say, we can suffer in your presence, we can die. Well, what a great thing to be able to say, because what's the truth of if you live long enough? You will both suffer and you will both die. And we need not be a people who are afraid of either one of those things. In fact, we spend too much of our time trying not to do either of those things, wasting uh, the opportunity to actually commune with our Savior in a way that will grant us life more abundant. I know that seems paradoxical, but the gospel itself is paradoxical. And so we need to wrestle with that in spirit and truth with contrite hearts, recognizing that in our finitude, we will, and I've said this before, you are never going to make yourself suffer enough to grow. You can't do it, which is why we need not just Jesus to save us, which, by the way, salvation is a process that goes from justification to glorification. It's not just this singular moment in time, one and done fire insurance. But in sanctification, where you grow to understand who you already are in your righteousness in Christ, that requires suffering and growth that you will not impose upon yourself. You just won't do it. And you don't understand. Think about any suffering that you've ever gone through, especially if it had any length of time to it. Think about the bargaining that you do with God. What's, the, what's one of the first questions that we always ask when suffering blows in? Why me? But even more spiritual, what do I need to learn from this? Because we want to know quick. Tell me what I need to learn from this. Where's the answer? So I can go ahead and get that information because we just have an information problem, right? If we just knew, we would do better, wouldn't we? (laughs) No, we wouldn't, and no, we don't. And so what we forget is that actually it's the journey, not necessarily the destination, that is of great value. It is the process, not the information, that actually does us the most good. And yet we're constantly rebelling and pushing against that as if we sovereignly understood these things. In fact, we've been doing this since East of Eden. And it's important that we see and those that are, we're going to encounter that grumble and, and are, are upset with Jesus saying he's the bread of life, we've been doing the same thing. We find all the same sayings hard. We don't want to deal with any of this stuff either. Just tell me the minimum. What's the minimum I need to do to get in the gate as if that's what this was really about? Forsaking the opportunity to walk in spirit and truth, to have a truly abundant life in the things that matter the most, that have eternal significance instead of the temporal things that are passing away. So as we step into the story, it's important for you to know that Jesus had just previously fed the 5,000. And in John's account of the feeding of the 5,000, there's this part at the end where they say these words. He is the prophet. Remember, the prophet is akin to Moses, but the one who is to come. He is the prophet who has come into the world. Let's seize him and make him our king. That's interesting language. How many of you would want to be seized and made king Well, the revolution is unkind to the ones they seize and that go against the policies that they would have for you to enact as their puppet king. And so Jesus, sensing what they were doing, 
does what he is capable of doing and no one else is, some sort of ninjutsu bending of the force and matrixy type stuff, and he goes away from them. And they seek him. In fact, he ends up having to walk on water to get away from these folks. And so he gets away from them, right? And they, they just come across the water and they find him. They're like, hey, you did a really cool thing with the bread and you did the walking on the water. That's, that's really amazing. But, but what further sign would you give us to show us you are who in fact we think you are? And how might we use that for our good after all? And that picks up where Jesus steps in. But I want to give you this quote from D.A. Carson because he captures it so well, the heart of the people. Because again, it would be a, you could read kind of in a vacuum and say, they're seeking Jesus. No, not the Jesus, the bread of life, and we're going to see that. They're seeking Jesus, the wonder-working sideshow, who they can use for their benefit. Listen to what D.A. Carson says. He says, this crowd has witnessed the divine revealer at work, but only their curiosity, appetites, and political ambitions have been aroused, not their faith. You know, he said, who's D.A. Carson think he is saying that? These people earnestly seeking Jesus. He going to talk about them that way? Well, we're going to see what gets revealed about their heart as Jesus engages with them once he begins to tell them really what they have seen and really what it is that they should be pursuing. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, and this is what I want us to take from this. This is the key truth. Jesus is the all-satisfying and sufficient bread of eternal life given to us according to the sovereign love and grace of God and applied to us in newness of life by the Holy Spirit. That's a critical thing for us to take in. Uh, and so as we go through this, may we, may we as God's people learn this in, in new and fresh ways to us. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is John 6, 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the first of a number of I am statements by Jesus in the Gospel of John. And so he says this very interesting thing that, again, to our ear maybe doesn't have the same significance as it did to the hearers there in the first century. So when he says, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst, what would have come to their minds, and again, you've got to understand they were much more literate than we are in terms of the Bible. It was required. It was not like for those of you who are children who think it's like you have choices, um, and that, that's a ubiquitous thing. That's fairly new in all of human history. In fact, it's fairly new in all of human history that we care about children much at all. So you're welcome uh, and uh, appreciate it. Don't throw it away and learn from it. 
Uh, but they would have been very literate, uh, uh, particularly when it came to the major sections of the Bible. So anything that would have fallen in the first five books of the Bible, they would have been very versed in, and they would also have been very versed in, in the major prophets. And so when Jesus says this, what would have come immediately to their mind, and, and you've got to understand when Jesus says it in part, they would have been challenged to think of it in whole, Okay. So, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55. This is a wonderful chapter that many of you are familiar with in some parts, but maybe have not read it in the spirit of which it is intended. And so this is very important for what he said, what Jesus is saying about what it means for him to be the bread of life. So if you would, give your attention to the reading of Isaiah chapter 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth... So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. Shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose." And shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Did you hear what Isaiah just promised to the people of God? He basically said, look, this is something you cannot pay for. This is something that you can do nothing to gain for yourself other than to submit in your unrighteousness and receive the compassion of the Lord. His ways are not your ways. The way in which he thinks about redemption is not the way in which we think about redemption. And praise God. Because there's some people that you and I wouldn't pick. And in fact, if some of y'all knew some of each other when you weren't picked, you wouldn't pick. You understand? 
It was interesting. I had uh, dinner with a friend of mine that uh, knows where all the bodies are hid in my life. James and I go way back. And uh, it was an amazing thing to sit down with him and have dinner and be able to laugh since the last time I saw him was not under good circumstances and was very difficult and really thought had destroyed our friendship. But he knew me when, and so he knows me. Now he knows I'm a pastor, and you can just see it in his eyes, the question, what in the world is going on here? So hopefully what he is recognizing is, behold, it is miraculous, every salvation. As we said when we were talking about uh, John the Baptist, that the greatest miracle of all is for a, a man or woman who has the hardness of heart and arrogance and pride that we all carry for us to submit to the will of the Lord. That is the greatest charismatic miracle you will ever witness. Everything else is easy for the God who speaks creation into being. It's nothing to him. But would that we would recognize and be amazed by what it is he longs for most, not to entertain us, not to make us powerful in ways that will be destructive to us so that we would turn and give thanks to our very own hands because of what we think we've accomplished. Praise be to God that he loves us when we are so incredibly unlovely. And praise be to God that his word doesn't return void. Did you hear that part of it? When Jesus says, that which I have gathered will by no means be cast out. It's the same thing that's being said here in Isaiah 55. He said, when the word goes forward, and who's the word, by the way, according to John 1? Christ is. He is the word incarnate, the word made flesh, the word that tabernacles among us. That he would keep all that he has gained. Now, that should do something for us because let me ask you a quick question. And this is, you can participate. This is not rhetorical. I'm sure that it'll be easy to count how many can say yes to this question. How many of you, since you uh, became a Christian, if you're a Christian, uh, have just been so perfect, they ought to make a movie about you? Hallmark, somebody ought to spend some time with you and really take notes. No one. And, and in those moments where you failed, what did the devil whisper, love? Why, why would you, you filthy wretch, think that you deserve Christ? Notice how I twisted the words. That'd be a pretty good devil, I think. It's not about dessert. That's what we can, in, in Martin, what, the way Martin Luther would say, I'll just throw back my baptism in your face. Because it is not what I have done. It is all that Christ has done that makes me new again. Notice the resurrection language that Jesus uses here as the bread of eternal life. The beauty of this is it's not that he just wants to gather in and save so that he could count some things. He's gathering in and saving so that we would rise and be with him for eternity. And be able to enjoy in spirit and truth and great joy and peace at long last. The experience of God our Father. And you may say, wow, I don't know. I don't know if that's all that big a deal. It's because you don't know. You who are finite can't know. The first thing for us to do is in humility admit what we are not. Notice what it said. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. But think about how often we try to hem God in. 
and say, well, if God don't think like this and God don't do what I like, then, well, he's not my God. Okay. If he happens to be the creator of the universe, you're in trouble. Right? How many of you are offended that gravity's 9.8 straight down? You really think we ought to be more of a 7.6-er? We got any 7.6ers in here? I'm starting a new group, by the way, if you want to join it. What are we going to do about it? Go become Chinese citizens and let them, let them shoot us to the far side of the moon and become the first colony that's not 9.8 straight down? Float around a little bit and see how that goes for us? See, there's just certain things that are just true whether you like them or not. And let me admit that sometimes I don't like what God says. And there are times I run upon things in his word that I think, I don't know that I can, I can defend you on this. And God said, I didn't ask you to defend me, ever. But thank you for coming to me with that. And so here, what Jesus is trying to get them to understand is the beauty of Isaiah 55 happening in their midst. The bread of life has come down that they can take and eat. It's nothing they have to buy. It is nothing they have to earn. It is nothing that they deserve, but it is freely offered to them. And even greater news is once it is gathered in, once we are gathered in, by no means can we be cast out. Now be honest. How many of you honestly wrestle with the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, meaning you can't lose your salvation? Absolutely. Thank you for being honest. And thank you for doing that. Yeah, it depends on the day. Depends on what I've done. <laughs> depends on what I need, grace or justice. If we're honest, every single one of us has wrestled with that doctrine. And it's because of our own sin and because of the sins of others, right? How, how, how in the world? I mean, it just killed me, the number of stories in the last few weeks, it involved the harming of children. And somewhere in the story, it says, this person was a churchgoer. This person was a Christian. Any of you know John Wetland, the pitcher for the Rangers and the Yankees? He, he just recently got busted for this. And, and it was the last line. So it was the thing you would remember the most if you read the article. You may say, what are you reading these articles for? I don't know. I can't help it. Sometimes I stare in the abyss. But it just kills me that that's the thing that gets put forward. And it even kills me even more that, that if that is true of John Wetland, that he would harm a four-year-old child from his own family. Can he be saved? Can he be what he said he was? Well, praise be to God, it's not for me to answer. My hand's not on that lever. For your good and mine, and yours isn't either. But do understand, this is a hard saying, is it not? It is a hard thing to wrestle with, and it's hard in its implications, because a lot of times what we're afraid of is that it will be used as a shield for people to do bad things. Now remember, banks of the river. So that one bank of the river is that which comes to Christ can by no means be cast out. But the implication is that it's genuinely, authentically come to Christ. And we know from Matthew 7 that there's the other bank of the river. You don't get to decide what's authentic. Christ does. For those of you who don't know what Matthew 7 says, it says that the many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, look at all that we've done in your name. He'll say, depart from me, you, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Which that is also a hard saying, by the way. It's awesome when the banks of the river are both really hard sayings. 
why it's good to stay in the middle of the river probably. But what I'm telling you is, is that one doesn't, doesn't strike out the other. In fact, it creates some measure of balance, and even in the midst of the paradox. So it's not that it's either or. We have to live in the tension of the both and. It is both that you could hear, depart from me, and that you will not be cast out. And you say, how can it be both? Well, the evidence actually is in the fruit of the tree. Do you look like? Sound like, live like someone who's eaten of the bread of life. And you may say, Did he just say we got to be perfect? <laughs> no, hardly. In fact, one of the times you're going to look the most like Jesus is when you seek forgiveness, when you are humble enough to say, I have transgressed this law, I have transgressed our friendship. When James and I sat down, we got through the small talk real quick, which if you know me at all, it's not shocking. And I said, hey, listen, if I had this to do over again, I would have never done that to you. Never. And he laughed and he said, I know. That's why I'm here. And so we were able to laugh from there. We didn't talk about it anymore. We caught up on life and laughed a whole bunch and took a selfie and sent it to a friend, um, which I was thrilled about if you know me at all. Um, and so, so I don't ever hear that this is about perfection. This is about the constant reminder, not that you are garbage. Please don't hear that either. But it's that we are in need and we are, that's just known, uh, especially it's funny. One of the things that James did say is he's like, man, we're getting old. <laughs> and it was obvious in looking at the two of us. We've changed a lot and lost a lot and gained a lot and all that stuff. And so, um, but what Jesus is trying to make clear here to these folks, now you got to also understand why this is so going to be so disconcerting to his audience. What do the Jews think? They think they're in. What did Jesus just say? No, you're not. Not automatically you're not. In fact, the way in is through me. And what he's going to tell us a little bit later, and we don't like this either, that no man or woman comes to God the Father except through Christ, whom the Father draws. And we'll get to that in just a minute. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this portion of the text. He says, Our Lord would have us know that he himself is the appointed food of man's soul. The soul of every man is naturally starving and famishing through sin. Let me pause right there. That's, that's got, it's inconsequential whether you feel that. That is just true of us in our natural state. So often we think, nah, I don't really feel it. Well, there's a lot of things you don't feel that still happen to be true, by the way. So be careful that you don't make this about your feelings. Christ is given by God the Father to be the satisfier, the reliever and the physician of humanity's spiritual need in him and his mediatorial office in him alone will empty souls find their wants supplied. In him, there is life. He is the bread of life. So the question I have for us at this point is, what are some ways in which Jesus, the bread of life, has satisfied your spiritual hunger and thirst? We need to be able to answer that, actually. And in what ways is he doing, continuing to do that in an ongoing fashion? And if you can't answer that question, that should be troubling to you and something you ought to investigate. 
And to maybe do that with some people you trust. And not just let the ground sit fallow for months and months and months trying to fake it till you make it. The most dangerous thing that we do is think that hiding is the best option. The most devastating thing that we do is think that we're actually faking it and nobody else sees it. We do. It's just so often we don't have the courage to say much to each other. But when the bomb goes off, you'll have the people who come around and say, yeah, I knew it. I knew you were in bad shape. Well, thank you, post hoc. Captain Obvious post hoc. But how might we love each other better in this? And being able to express to one another, asking each other how Jesus... And again, I'm with you. This doesn't seem like the best question to ask at halftime between the Patriots and the Chiefs this afternoon. It seems like it would be an odd thing to drop in the old punch bowl and make the situation feel spiritual and weird. But think about how the devil has cultivated that in us, that we, the thing that would matter the most to us to talk about, he's turned into the weirdest subject in the room. And how might we grow in being able to encourage each other to be satisfied in Christ? My own testimony, one of the greatest things I did as, as I was wrapping up seminary, and the seminary, by the way, uh, um, uh, I loved my seminary experience, but there were times that I was a functional atheist. It was hard to believe. I was drinking from the, you know, it's kind of water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. And so, uh, and that's my own junk. That's not, by the way, that is not casting dispersions in RTS Atlanta. I, again, I had a fantastic experience. Not because Jonathan's just sitting here, but <laughs> genuinely. But I was so exhausted in life. My children were coming off the rails. I'd been driving forth from, back and forth from Macon. Uh, I was serving on staff at the rescue mission. I was serving on staff at Strong Tower. Everything was going out. Nothing was coming back in. And I realized, I need, to, I need to get back to the most basic thing of all. I just want to study the personal work of Christ for a year. Everybody always asks me, well, what would you do? As if it's some sort of formula. Study the personal work of Christ. Stared real close at Ephesians and Colossians and read John Murray's Redemption Accomplished and Applied, which as it turns out, I tried to read it with other people. It's really hard after all, actually. I thought, man, this was amazing. And nobody else seemed to enjoy it at all. It's the most failed discipleship experiment I've ever under, you know, kind of put out there. Um, but, but what it did do is it, is it, is it transformed something in me that, that I, I will forever be grateful for. Um, it, it, it really solidified some things in my understanding about the person and work of Christ, which, by the way, is the point of the Holy Spirit, right? That's the whole thing he wants to do is undergird the foundation in such a way that it can never be taken from you. But you don't get that if you are not engaging in the question. And I know many of you are thirsty, and many of you are hungry, and many of you are tired, and you actually don't want to talk about it anymore because you feel like you've done enough. You don't want a book recommendation any more than you want another hole in your head. How about we just pray for you? But we just walk close to you and maybe, maybe give you some of the words of life. Don't, don't see this as only one way to do this thing. Sometimes the simplest, falling back to the simplest of concepts, I am the bread of life. And just Isaiah 55, whatever it is, soaking in some of this stuff would do our hearts tremendous good. Turn back to the text and let's see 
how the Jews respond to his proclamation of being the bread of life. This is John 6, 41 through 59. Give again your attention to the reading of God's word. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink the blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, as the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that has come down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. All right, so straight away, the Jews hear that he's bread of life, and they don't like it. He's not the Savior they want. Here's what's fascinating. Earlier on in the chapter, they said, this is the prophet who's coming to the world. Let's seize and make him king. They were fine with him before when he was a tool in their hands. But when he wrenched himself from their hands, essentially, and said, oh, no. I am the bread of life, and you are not who you think you are, unless you take and eat of me. They didn't like it. This is not the Messiah they were looking for. We know his mom and daddy. He's just common like us. Wasn't that true before when he was the prophet who came into the world that they wanted to seize and make king? See, they heard something they didn't like and all of a sudden they start looking for a different savior. Does this sound familiar to you at all in your own life? How many of you, as you read the scriptures, think to yourself, ah, this really is the savior I'm looking for who requires something of me? Which is why we take and twist doctrines. Either we go cheap grace or hardcore legalism. We want it simple math or no math at all. But we don't get to decide, right? That's what he's saying. You don't get to decide. In fact, unless the Father draws you, which by the way in the Greek, that word does not mean to woo and beckon gently. It means to snatch and drag. So unless the Father... And this language is not dissimilar to the language in Jude, which we are called to snatch sinners from the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. See, we too ought to be part of this as ambassadors of reconciliation, but unless the Father 
does what he does, whose ways are not our ways, whose thoughts are not our thoughts, who loves more broadly than any of us could ever imagine, and more deeply and more patiently and more long-sufferingly than anyone could ever imagine, more steadfastly, unless he draws, unless he says. Now, I, I just, am I talking about predestination right now? Yes. But what you must understand is in the hands of the biblical writers, predestination is a doctrine of comfort and inclusion, not exclusion, and cannot be in the hands of any man to say who's in, who's out. When any of us utter predestination, what we're actually saying is anybody could get in. And I have no idea who anybody might be. You understand? But too often what we have done is when we hear predestination, we immediately get worried about who's out, right? That someone has been formed from before the foundation of the world for the fires of hell itself. Where in the Bible does it say that? Well, that's the paradox, isn't it? So if God doesn't draw you, what happens? But just last week, Jesus made it very clear to us that we cultivate our love of the darkness because of who we are, because of our own rebellion and brokenness. And notice how freely things are offered to all, ought be, right? So that we would have any chance at all. So it is not for us to try to decide who's in, who's out. And what's always interesting to me is, for those who do wrestle with the doctrine of predestination, uh, and this isn't fair, by the way, this is a corner I'll paint you into real quick uh, that's, that's kind of dirty pool, actually, is, listen, the reality is if you don't believe in predestination, you're a double predestinarian. Let me tell you why. Because you think that it depends on the choice of the individual, correct? Potentially. And so, uh, so if it's the, up to the choice of the individual, that means they've got to hear it from somewhere. So what does it mean when you don't share it with them? What are you essentially saying to them? As far as I'm concerned, you can go to hell. And see, we don't love near as much as we claim to, now do we? We're not really as worried about it as we say. So then we fall back and say, well, then God, just save everybody. But not that guy. He's my neighbor. I don't like him very much. He keeps throwing his trash over my, into my yard. You know, keep it up with his leaves. So it's sobering to us that there is this paradox. That unless the Lord draws, no man comes by their own accord. But the Lord's drawing is irresistible. And the Lord's drawing is so powerful and so patient and so kind that we ought to be more in awe and humble and share that with everybody that we could as if we thought it was up to them to choose. Instead of keeping our light under a bushel and saying, let God sort it out. And so Jesus is making it very clear, and they don't like it either, by the way. They've been, we've been mad about predestination since East of Eden. We were mad about predestination Adam and Eve were mad about it, right? They were picked as our first parents, and there was a way in which they were to grow in the image of God, and they didn't like it, right? And they grabbed the fruit of the tree at the behest of the serpent, but they already had stuff twisted in their own hearts. They took the shortcut. 
And we didn't like it when they picked Israel. They didn't like being picked. We didn't like it. David didn't like being picked either. Remember, he argued. Moses didn't like being picked either. Remember, he argued. And none of them kept their hands clean. But again, what is the purpose? So that the glory of the Lord would fill the earth. Not just one little nation, not just one little part. So the tension that we have to wrestle with is that while God is sovereign, he is also far more gracious than we can comprehend. And does it answer every single question that we have? No. Because his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And so that means that there's no way for us to understand it all. It would be arrogant to think we could. Some of it has to be revealed in time and then in eternity. And so we have to let the scripture be the scripture. We have to wrestle with it as such. So they're grumbling. And notice, they didn't grumble to Jesus. They didn't despair to Jesus. They did it among themselves. And how many of you like it when somebody busts in on your conversation with some information for you that they weren't part of? Understand how irritated they were that Jesus would just bust in and say, truly, truly, I say to you, you got this wrong. But why is he telling them they're wrong? Because he loves them. And because he doesn't want them to perish. And because he wants them to be what they were chosen to be, which is a priesthood to all the nations. See, for us to be truly biblical is to be missional to care about the condition of the souls of those around us, not to get tangled up in philosophical paradoxes. But the good news is that we are able to share the gospel with people knowing that the effectualness is not upon us or our behavior. Amen? I'm not sure you all were convinced of that. And so he makes it very clear Unless you feed on him, unless it is him that is taken into you and resides in you, just because you're born to a certain family, just because you went to church with your grandmother, just because you showed up at Christmas or Easter, just because you claimed something, doesn't mean that you are what you think you are. Unless Jesus truly is for you, the bread of life, and so, it's not just them who's struggling, as we'll see in just a moment. But one of the things he says to them that, again, means a lot more to them than it probably does to us because, again, of our illiteracy of the Bible itself, but he tells them the story about the manna in the wilderness and how they're dead. So what he's saying to them is, look, there's a common grace at which God sustains his people. And that first generation that was disobedient, he made sure they had what they needed. But it was not eternal life necessarily. They died in the wilderness because of their disobedience. So he's warning them that they too must respond to the things of God, the promises of God, and submit themselves to Christ alone, by faith alone, by God's grace alone. And so this would have been jarring to them, which is why they got to disputing. And he repeats himself again, you notice. A lot of repetition here as if he's talking to children. 
And listen to what Charles Simeon says about this. He says, there are in the Holy Scriptures many doctrines which prove an offense and a stumbling block to the world. But the reason of their exciting disgust and aversion must be looked for not so much in the doctrines themselves as in the depravity of the human heart. To a humble and contrite spirit, every truth in the Bible will appear reasonable and worthy of God. And I would add, eventually. It is the pride of man that takes offense at the sacred records and that renders him unable to receive the declarations of God. Our blessed Lord had told the Jews repeatedly that he came down from heaven. They, knowing his mother and his reputed father, could not endure that he should arrogate to himself such a high honor. But he informed them that the ground of the offense was within themselves. They were blinded by their own prejudices and fettered by their own lusts, so that nothing but the almighty grace of God could ever draw them to him in a becoming manner. So what do you struggle with most in terms of God's sovereign wisdom and control over salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone, through his grace alone? Would you prefer a God who doesn't know the future? Who has no control over things, especially the way things have gone since East of Eden? Again, doesn't explain all that's happened, doesn't explain all that will happen. But what hope do you have outside of that reality? Yes, we have many questions for God, and we should. Remember, Habakkuk says, the antithesis to faith is not doubt. It's pride. And pride sometimes shows up in the questions and the questioner, doesn't it? That we are unwilling to hear the answers that if we do find a scripture that clearly says, we try to twist it and render it out of court. So here's where we must be careful to submit. We must be careful to recognize even still the questions we have, God's grace is still greater still than anything we could comprehend. And so, while you will struggle, if you're not struggling with the sovereignty of God, I don't know what you're paying attention to. So there's some truth to the struggle that ought to be there. And it's not that if you were to come to me and say, all right, you say God must draw someone. I've got a family member. We all have family members, by the way. And if God is not the one who draws, if they have rejected you thus far, what makes you think that you're going to come up with something new that's going to draw them if he doesn't? Maybe you've had a family member go on before you. Will you snatch them out of the fires of hell by deciding you don't believe that hell exists? Would it not be better that that would motivate you to make sure that while you have breath and time that you would ask the Lord to teach you to number your days and share the gospel in ways that at least you would know they've heard instead of leaving it to something else, especially when the Lord has in his sovereign working placed you in that sphere of influence. You can't have it both ways. We either submit and participate, or we rebel in our arrogance. Let's turn back to the text and see that even those closest to Jesus had a hard time with this stuff as well. So take heart, you're in good company. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, 
Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning that those that... that, Let me try this again. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and had come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Notice that even the disciples, the ones who had bought into some of this stuff, they're like, This is a, who can listen to this stuff? Who can sit and listen to this? And notice they didn't go to him with this, as so often we don't do. See, they were talking amongst themselves as if they could find their way out of this really interesting locked box. And Jesus in grace steps in, knowing that they're grumbling. He says, you you take offense at this? How much more offended are you going to be when you see me depart? He's talking about the ascension, which is following his crucifixion and resurrection. How much more offended are you going to be when I'm not here anymore and you don't have me to turn to or show you the way? And then he makes sure that they understand that the Spirit is coming. It's the Spirit who will transform. It's the Spirit who regenerates in the power of God, in the grace of God, through the work and person of Christ. And so he's making sure that they understand this story is continuing. And notice at least... If if this is the crowd from the 5,000, 4,988 people walk away. Even if it's not that exact amount, you've got to understand it was a large number of people. How grievous would it have been for Christ to see a group of people that he was saying, I love you, I'm going to lay down my life for you, and I'm going to raise you from the dead for the hope of eternal life to go, yeah, man, I I can't make the math work. This is hard. I don't have time to wrestle with this. I got stuff to do. I'll go my own way. Which is why he then turns to the 12 and says, do you want to go too? And Jesus gets to hear the most beautiful confession from Peter, the one who messed up so much, who in his brokenness and submission says, where are we going to go? Where else would we hear the words of eternal life even when they're hard? Even when we can't get our minds all the way around them right now, we trust you. We trust that what you're saying is true and that in the power of the Spirit, sooner or later, we'll be able to come to terms with it. Because we're with you and you are with us. And notice that he offers yet another warning that there could be one so close who saw so much in Judas Iscariot who would be utterly unmoved And you may say, well, wait a minute now. I thought the Lord didn't draw him. Well, but why didn't Judas come of his own accord? Didn't say that he 
pushed him away. He essentially was left to his own devices to make his own decision. Judas made his own decision, you understand. Because Judas didn't get what he wanted. How heartbreaking is that? How heartbreaking of an example is it that you could be so close and you could see so much and yet for 30 pieces of silver, give him up. So that's the warning to us. That when we are left to our own devices, we don't come. Even when we see all this amazing stuff going on, that doesn't phase us one iota. Our pride is too strong for all that. The hardness of our heart, too strong for all that. We need radical regeneration, which only the Spirit can accomplish. Flesh only. He does it through the Word of God. The Spirit comes with the Word. He uses the Word to pierce our hearts, to change the disposition of our souls. It was by the Word of God that the universe was brought out of nothing. It is at the Word of God that you and I are rescued from spiritual nothingness and made alive to the things of God. So how do you address the hard sayings of Scripture? Some of you, it's, I don't read it. That's easy. You let that thing sit in the back of your car, and it'll curl up nice, make it look like you mess with it once in a while. I just don't read it. How many of you, that would be true of you? I'm not, no show of hands. Others of you, you just skip the hard parts. You, I'm just going to stay in the Psalms and the Proverbs. Seems like gentler waters. You're not reading the Proverbs right if you think those are gentler waters, actually. And you're really not reading the Psalms right because the Psalms are all about suffering. The majority of them are lamentations. That's why you're like, well, I, that's Psalm 23. <laughs> stay in the banks of that there river. Maybe 150 every now and again. Right? But never 73. Never 88, the unresolved song. That does resolve in 89. And we also, we don't read the Old Testament very much, which again, by the way, I want to say, you cannot understand the new if you don't have some understanding of the old. A lot of this stuff is opaque to you. Even There's stuff I didn't even get to. When Jesus says that those who look up to the Son are saved, he's calling them back again to that, uh, from Numbers 21, the passage about the brazen serpent. There's so much we miss because we haven't put in the time and the effort. And you got to remember who I was. I remember one of the conversations I had with my father uh, sitting out on the breezeway. I made this comment. I said, the, the Bible is such a disjointed rag bag of nonsense. It is inconsistent all over the place. And we took the Bible out and we pointed out several parts and felt really good about ourselves. And the Lord said, you're going to remember that someday. You know what breaks my heart about that? This is the only time I ever talked to my father about the Bible was that moment. Now, he came and heard me talk about it in some of these type venues. And so hopefully, that's enough. I don't know. So how do you address the hard sayings of Scripture? What resources have you found to be beneficial? Are you willing to wrestle not just saying, give me an answer, but teach me, O oh Lord. Teach me in time, trusting the process, trusting that God will answer in his timing. His ways are not your ways, his thoughts are not your thoughts, but the word will not return void. 
and also recognizing in humility that we don't get to dictate. That's the problem of everybody else other than Jesus in this passage. So what do we learn from John 6, 35 through 71? It teaches us that Jesus is the all-satisfying and sufficient bread of eternal life given to us according to the sovereign love and grace of God and applied to us in newness of life by the Holy Spirit. 